Well, if you have a Bible before you, you can open to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. In the fall of 1989, I was a college student overseas. I spent those four months on a study abroad program in Madrid, Spain. And that November, I learned an important lesson in international culture. Europeans don't celebrate Thanksgiving. Oh, I know ours is rooted in our colonial heritage, but I guess I was just so accustomed to spending the fourth Thursday of every November watching football and eating turkey and dressing and pumpkin pie and talking to cousins that I never knew I had that I just assumed everybody must celebrate Thanksgiving. Why would you not celebrate Thanksgiving? Obviously, given the historical background, the answer is obvious. But the question that we ought to ask is, why? Why do we celebrate Thanksgiving? The theological reason is deeply significant and utterly simple all at once here in this psalm. It's even repetitive, which you will see as we look at this Thanksgiving prayer, this hymn with a refrain prayed and even sung by God's people in ages past. And you young Christians, as you listen, you won't even have to listen very carefully. See if after you hear this, you can write down what is the theme of this psalm. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who alone does great wonders, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who by understanding made the heavens, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who spread out the earth above the waters, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who made the great lights, for His steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for His steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for His steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for His steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who divided the Red Sea in two, for His steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for His steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who led His people through the wilderness, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to Him who struck down great kings, for His steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings, for His steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for His steadfast love endures forever, and Og, king of Bashan, for His steadfast love endures forever, and gave their land as, an, as a heritage, for His steadfast love endures forever, a heritage to His servant Israel, for His steadfast love endures forever. It is He who remembered us in our low estate, 
for his steadfast love endures forever and rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we do pray that you would grant to us grace that we might see and be persuaded of your love for us that never ends. We pray that you would persuade us of that love so that we might serve you and give you thanks with glad hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I was on a family trip the first time that I saw it. My father and I were taking a tour to the eastern states in the summer of 1986 to consider some colleges that I might possibly attend or at least hope to attend. And typical of any Peter's road trip, the destination was not a spot on the map so much as a direction on the compass. If you're going to drive all the way from Texas to Georgia and North Carolina, then we figure you may as well end up in Boston. And so we did. And we knew that no Texas tourist can wander so far from home and so close to the land of the pilgrims without going to see it. Plymouth Rock. You know, that legendary geological wonder that inspires schoolchildren everywhere. Our trip would not have been complete without a visit to this national treasure, and so we went to visit it. And just the thought of it makes me wonder, even now, what was that first Thanksgiving like? You may know that there are numerous claims to the first Thanksgiving celebration in the colonies. The best known is, of course, that of the pilgrims at Plymouth, who, having landed in 1620, endured their first harsh winter and then celebrated a summer harvest in the company of the local Wampanoag tribe of Indians and their chief Massasoit. But more than a decade earlier than that, the colonists of Jamestown, after losing more than 300 of their original 409 settlers, called for a time of thanksgiving to God when supplies finally arrived from England. But it would not be until 1789, some 170 or so years later, when President George Washington proclaimed our first national day of Thanksgiving, and even still 70 years beyond that when Abraham Lincoln's proclamation set the date as the fourth Thursday in November. Of course, soon after that, football schedules set the date in stone, and the rest is history, right? But beyond the colorful history of this country, thanksgiving in the family of God reaches much farther into ages past, and we would be shallow and even irresponsible to not recognize the significance of that. It is, after all, in those ages and God's redemptive work in them to which this psalmist ties his gratitude And he makes no secret of his Thanksgiving theme. Did you guys figure it out? Wasn't hard to hear, was it? He makes no secret of it. If ever the Bible used repetition to make a point, 
Here it is. This refrain, sung over and over and over again, is it. God's steadfast love endures forever. It never ends. That is, His covenant love, His love for His people is never ending. Grounded in His incomparable goodness as the only God, this love in which His gospel is born will not end ever. One problem with a statement like this is that for it to be taken seriously, it has to be grounded in historical fact, right? And that's, of course, exactly what this psalmist has done. God's love for you, Christian, has no end. And you know that by His dealings with all things, with some things, and with one thing. We know God's covenant love endures forever because He made all things. We've sung of it this morning already. He made all things. Give thanks to Him who alone does great wonders. Verse 4. Who by His understanding made the heavens, who spread out the earth above the waters and made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and the stars to rule over the night. His steadfast love endures forever. It never ends. If we have reason to be grateful for anything at all, it really should be found by us at the moment of God's first speaking, the the very moment that He spoke creation into being. The biblical writers express awe at the majestic power of God in creation in many places, and that's, of course, why we sing of it Frequently, that's why hymn writers write of it so often as they do. Sometimes it's obvious in Scripture. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands, Scripture tells us. It's obvious what the writer is about there. In other places, it's more subtle. Somebody has said, I think they're right, that Genesis 1 verse 16 contains, it's not even the whole verse, it contains the greatest throwaway line in the Bible. He also made the stars. And that's all it says about it. As though that were a simple thing. So whether it's obvious or subtle, Scripture calls you to recognize the glory of all things that God has made, see an intense expression of covenant love in it, and therefore give Him thanks for it. A few nights ago, the sky was clear outside as the sun set, and I remembered hearing that Jupiter was visible in the early evening sky. And so, with one child having just finished a school project on the big planet, I decided that we ought to go outside and try to see it. So, we took a telescope that we have out in the front yard on the front walk and set it up there, and we found the bright light in the southeastern sky, I think it was, that was supposedly the distant planet, and we focused in on it, found it by, if I may say, a stroke of luck, because sometimes those tiny things are hard to find, in a telescope. We found it, we focused in, and there it was. And after just a few adjustments of lenses and focus, we could see the details of its reddish-brown stripes, and even 
four of its moons. It has many more than that, but we could see all of that in the lens of our telescope. And now I realize that not everybody's interested in astronomy, and that's okay. But you've got to hang with me for a moment here. You have to think about this for a minute. Not only did God, by His understanding or wisdom, as the psalmist says, form and place that planet in the sky, but He also made it to be, listen, 1,300 times larger than this planet where we so proudly reside. And He established the physics of light and the biology of sight so that my family could pull that monster, as it were, right into our front yard. Now, if that doesn't make you marvel and give thanks to God, then you probably should repent of your petty complexities. Right? I mean, this psalm gives thanks to God because He is the only God, and by His creation of all things, He displays His providence... And his generosity. If God made all things, then it follows that he is the owner of all things. And there are no things that are beyond his careful reach. Right? Whatever the circumstances of your life, if you are God's child, then you can be assured that he is in his goodness at work in it for your good. The Heidelberg Catechism states it so clearly and warmly and beautifully, if you're not familiar with that catechism. In answer to the question, what is meant by the providence of God, the Heidelberg Catechism says this, It is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He still upholds heaven, earth, and all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. And then it becomes very practical with the next question. What does it profit us to know this? And the answer, it profits us to know this, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, may have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love, since all creatures are so in His hand that without His will they cannot so much as move. God's providence tells us that we don't live in a borrowed universe. It all belongs to God. And He uses it all to work His purposes. Many of the pilgrims knew that He would not abandon them on the shores of a strange new land. And likewise, He will not abandon you or me in any situation. This psalm is one of a category known as historical psalms. Maybe you know some of those categories of different types of psalms. This is a historical psalm for the obvious reason that it recalls the history of God's redemptive work all the way back to creation and reminds us of the details of that history. And in giving it to us, it is as though God were to say, 
I know that you have doubts. I know that you forget. I know that circumstances surrounding you on the outside and even on the inside of you cause great insecurity for you. But look around and see all that I've made. Marvel at the power and the beauty of the work of my hands and remember that it's all still in my hands and I will do good for you with what I've made. By His providence, God is at work in the universe that He's made. Likewise, God's creative power reveals also to us His generosity. He gives, as the psalmist says, food to all flesh, to every creature that is. He provides food for every creature that He's made. Whether good or evil, or however you might see that, He provides food for all creatures, blessing for all that He's made. In his chronicle of the Plymouth Colony, called How the Pilgrim Fathers Lived, Edward Winslow gives this eyewitness account of the first Thanksgiving. He wrote this, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling, that is hunting, that we might rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. They four killed in one day as much fowl as served the whole company almost a week. At which time many of the Indians came among us, and among the rest their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And we went out and killed five deer, which uh, came among us to the plantation and bestowed upon our governor. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time, yet by the generosity of God we are so far from want. I never really knew how far from want I was until I walked through a Spanish supermarket during my study abroad, fully expecting it to be like Kroger or Safeway back home in Dallas. It was not. There was no aisle devoted entirely to breakfast food, which you might expect, wouldn't you? I mean, surely that's par for the course. And the one shelf where I found it had only two varieties of cereal. I was actually kind of offended. I mean, how dare they limit my choices? We forget that God made all things and we so often often simply indulgently enjoy all the things that God has made. He has given us so much in creation, so much good in this rich country even where we live. The entire world has been blessed, or at the very least affected, by the overflow of His generosity. To look at the material blessings that we have, it seems at times that God almost loves us too much. Almost. As the maker of all things, God shows His love for His people through His providence and His generosity, but as the perfect Father, He also knows the danger of spoiling His child. And so we see that God's enduring love is shown not just by how He provides for us, but by what He does in us. God made all things, and He is working to redeem some things. He's not redeeming all things, but in His sovereign mercy, God is 
working, having seen fit to redeem some things to their former created glory. And this is the next redemptive act that we see here in this psalm. In verse 10 and following, he writes, Give thanks to God, who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it, but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. Okay, now, a little piece of history given to us there. Redemptive history, a picture of what God's people would have remembered having read the Old Testament Scripture. And we, maybe more than they in their context, in our context today, have to admit that this begs some serious questions for us, causes some problems for us. What about the Egyptians? What about Pharaoh and his army? Isn't it unfair for God to not redeem them? Isn't it unfair? I mean, a skeptic might object that if God truly loves, then he would redeem all things, not just some. Don't we all deserve a second chance, he might say? I mean, surely Pharaoh was no worse a man than Moses. Surely the Egyptian army was no worse and deserved surely as much as the complaining Israelite, why would God only redeem some things? If He's a God of grace, then He's obligated to all. Someone might object. But is He really? Is He really obligated to all? If He were obligated to any at all, then there would be no grace in the equation. It's true that, this, uh, that, that Pharaoh was no worse a man than Moses. It's true that the Egyptian soldier deserved just as much as the complaining Israelite. And it's true that this redemption is not fair. But the unfairness lies not in the death of some, but in the redemption of any at all. What's unfair is that God is redeeming anything at all. He saved you, Paul wrote, not because of good things you had done, but because of His mercy. The last thing that a captured war criminal wants is fairness. What he needs is mercy. And that's what God has given you who believe the gospel. And this historical accounting of it should remind you that His love for you has no end and it should move you to thanksgiving. For you who are unsure of this, maybe even skeptical, the offer stands. Still, seek the Lord while He may be found, Isaiah says. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and He will have mercy on him. And to our God and He will freely pardon. That's God's invitation to the skeptic and to the one who accepts it. This free pardon includes a promise of redemption. You know, look at verse 23. This psalmist tells us, Give thanks to the one who remembered us in our low estate and freed us from our enemies. Now, there's no doubt, sure, in the historical context, again, of this psalm, that the writer is recalling the low estate of the slavery of Israel in Egypt and God's rescue of them from that. And you may not know slavery to another person as they did, but it applies to us still because before God took hold of you and of me, 
We were enslaved to our sin. That's what Paul writes elsewhere. I'm unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin, Paul writes. And in rescuing you from your low estate, God is at work to redeem you to former glory. God is sanctifying you. Now, often Christians make that a complicated course of action, really. We uh, want sanctification. We want the depth of soul that we know Scripture promises to us. And, and we want it now. We're impatient. We treat it often like some 50% off Black Friday sale. You know, we're willing to wait in line at 2 a.m. for it, pushing and shoving to get our share off the shelf before it's all gone. And then we can just check it off the list and go home and take it easy the rest of the time. But that's not how God deals with us. He doesn't feed us as consumers with methods or programs or guaranteed results. He's far more ordinary than that, believe it or not. Right here in Psalm 136, it seems to say that God displays His covenant love for His children through the ordinary ordinary events of history and by the work of God's spirit our being persuaded of that love should lead to an unspoken consequence it should lead naturally to a life that's pleasing to him God uses ordinary things to bring about extraordinary results We heard some of that with the sacramental meditation moments ago. That's what a sacrament is, that God brings about extraordinary things in us by use of ordinary things. That's what a sacrament is. John Bunyan, who is, as you may know, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, once debated with others while in prison for preaching the gospel. He debated with his uh, friends there, his fellow prisoners, the motive of a Christian's obedience. Now, Bunyan, who was a simple and a humble man, proposed that one of his greatest tasks as a preacher was simply to persuade God's people that God loves them. His detractors complained. But if you just keep telling people that God loves them, then they'll just do whatever pleases them. To which Bunyan very simply and humbly replied, No, no. If they are persuaded that God loves them, then they'll do what pleases Him. Such a desire to please stems from the tangible expressions of your father's love in the past. Being a parent myself, I reflect on my experience with my own parents. And I have to say that 30 years ago, They'll be glad to hear as I remember this. They seemed to have mastered the gift or the secret of being omnipresent. With four children, they attended countless soccer and basketball and football games and track meets and ballet recitals and junior rodeo days, science fairs and school plays, field trips and award presentations. Parents, the list goes on and on, right? It goes on and on. They even volunteered frequently in the school cafeteria just to be with their kids in their normal routine. And I think back to all of those normal events of my family history and my parents' effort to be there in history with us. 
And I know that my parents' love for me endures still, and I still, even at 43 years of age, want to please them. How much more then, how much more then with your heavenly Father who is omnipresent, who is everywhere you are all the time, and more than that, who was actively present in the world long before you were even a twinkle in your parents' eyes and working for your redemption even then. That's what this psalm is recounting, isn't it? That's what this psalm is telling you and persuading you of. Thanks be to God, the psalmist says, that He's at work to redeem some things, His children. But even that, even that would seem maybe insufficient if there were not an end in sight. And so we see in the psalm as well that God displays His enduring love for us with a promise to complete one thing. God made all things. He's redeeming some things. And He's promised to complete one thing. Verse 16 and following. Give thanks to Him who led His people through the desert who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings and gave their land as an inheritance to his servant Israel. What is the one thing that God will complete? It is this, to bring a final rest to his people in the land that his servant inherited, that is, in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, it's no secret that the Israelites wandering in the desert looked forward to the day when Moses and Joshua would lead them into the promised land. And we today have the advantage of knowing more of God's unfolding redemptive history than they knew. And we know that that plot of ground on the banks of the Jordan River was a foreshadowing of something far greater to come. The writer of Hebrews tells us, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. But there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Last spring, in our School of Life and Doctrine, we studied, some of us, the book of Revelation. And we saw there and enjoyed the cinematic pictures of God's fulfillment of His redemption, His redemptive plan, His returning of man to the perfection of the Garden of Eden, as it were. He had, of course, made man for that garden to live at peace with God, enjoying all the fruits of creation in that garden But that grace was answered with rebellion, as you know, and they were banished from the garden, God placing fierce angels to guard the entrance that they might not come back in. And the history of mankind ever since is of His repeated efforts simply to re-enter the garden. That's what we're about, to try to re-enter the garden by our own devices. All men seek happiness. It's the motive of every action, of every person. We were made for it. And so we try to get back in the garden. We surround ourselves with people who are comfortable to us. We escape reality with video and vacation and hobbies. And we seek out special medical procedures to to prolong our youth if we can. And we schedule out the details of our retirement 
as though then we will have finally earned our keep. But we never find our way back into the garden. Despite all that we might do to get there, we don't find our way back in because the entrance is guarded. We're not allowed in. Lest we should take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever in our sin. And this is the one thing that God has promised to complete, to get his people back into the garden. And we know this one thing is sure to happen because of the one who inherits the land. Verse 22 tells us the land is a heritage to Israel, his servant. Again, the psalmist surely had in mind that ragtag group of people that God led out of Egypt and followed Moses through the wilderness. But again, we have a larger scope on redemptive history than they did. And we know that those 12 tribes of people never fully inherited the land, right? It was never complete. Joshua never really gave them rest. And so Isaiah speaks more distinctly about this servant when uh, through him God says this, By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured his life out unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Who is this servant of God? Is it some great king who walks the halls of men in history? Is it even some great nation established on the shores of 17th century promise? course not not a chance jesus is the only true servant of god and his portion his spoils as isaiah writes his inheritance is merely foreshadowed by the dust and mud of an obscure middle eastern country what is the one thing god will complete he will bring the new heavens and the new earth ruled by the only real king that ever was, and its pilgrims will know no pain and no hunger and no thirst. They will cease their striving because they will be back in the garden. God has expressed His never-ending love for His people by promising to complete this one thing. The memory of that family trip has faded a bit for me over... 25 years or so since. But I can still picture the scene as we approach the monument surrounding Plymouth Rock. Maybe you've been there and you can picture it in your own mind. I had really expected to find an enormous and magnificent boulder that would tower over the bay and proclaim itself the foundation of a mighty and powerful nation. But what I found instead was a small gray stone with the year 1620 inscribed in its surface and surrounded by a fence to keep would-be vandals away. It was a total disappointment. I was so let down. That's Plymouth Rock? That's the rock on which our pilgrim fathers landed? Really? The legendary symbol of the great American dream was not all it was supposed to be. And maybe, you know, just maybe, 
the great American dream itself is not quite all it was supposed to be. We live in a great nation, one that was established and developed and is still defended even by the blood of those who dream great dreams. And by the goodness of God, we are so, so far from want. Yet, yet a day of thanksgiving remains to be seen for the children of God that is infinitely greater still. God will deliver us to the promised land, to the new heavens and the new earth. And there not only will we be free to worship Him as He calls us to do, but the bounty of the banquet table will be breathtakingly vast. And the creative and redemptive works of God in all of history will be crystal clear to everyone as every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And no one will doubt that God's covenant love indeed endures forever. God made all things. He's redeeming some things. And He will, in the day of Christ Jesus, bring to completion that one thing for which every human being longs. Thanks be to God. O Lord our God, we give You thanks. And we pray that You would persuade us, persuade us of Your love for us. We are slow We confess, O Lord, slow to recognize Your goodness, slow to realize Your never-ending love for us, slow to respond to it with thanksgiving, with obedience even. We pray, O Lord, that You would grant to us the grace to respond, the grace to follow after Your Word, recognizing Your love for us that never ends. And in Jesus' name, we will give you thanks and praise. Amen.